How is everyone doing this morning? You okay? Good. It's a glorious day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Well, we are still walking through our series on holiness, the calling and the challenge, not only to the church, but to the individuals on that call to holiness. And today we are moving beyond 1 Corinthians chapter 7 into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, where Paul is continually uh, speaking to the Corinthian Christians. Now, as they said a couple weeks ago, we've now seen Paul responding to many of the questions that were coming from the Corinthian Christians, questions that they were wrestling with. And so today's question uh, might be one of the more interesting questions because it actually has to do with food. And so uh, if you came in, excuse me, if you came in today and you did not have breakfast, um, you need to prepare yourself that you are going to be tempted to become distracted about all the wonderful places and all the wonderful things that you can eat for lunch. Okay, because we're going to talk a lot about food today. So kind of prepare yourself for that, all right? Uh, but we're not just talking about any kind of food or places to go eat or where we should eat and um, why you should invite your pastor to join you because that's a good thing. But we're also going to be talking specifically about food uh, that has been offered to idols. So in this chapter, we're literally going to see Paul address the issue of food being sacrificed to idols and whether or not as believers in Christ for the Corinthian Christians, whether or not they should partake of that food and eat that food. And ultimately what Paul's going to do is he's going to use this illustration of food being offered to idols to point the people, particularly the Corinthian Christians, to what can best be described as how we are now called to practice biblical knowledge. Now before we jump into our text, I want us to understand that Paul actually addresses two groups around this issue. There's one group that's known as the knowers, is what we're going to call them today, and then there's another group uh, that can be called the weak. Now, when we say weak, to give some context to that, we're not talking physically small in stature. We're not talking about physical weakness, but rather when Paul talks about the weak in this particular passage, he's talking about those who may be new to the faith and therefore may be immature and lacking in knowledge of what the Word of God has taught. Now, more on that in a moment. So as we look at this text, I want us to see that Paul teaches the church that when it comes to food, particularly the food that we consume, we need to remember that as believers in Christ, just like the Corinthian Christians, we are called to glorify God in all things. That's why if you have read ahead, you probably got to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where it says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So let's look at this text together, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and see why practicing biblical knowledge is so important to our lives and ultimately so important to, the, to glorifying God when it comes not only to what, how we live, but also in how we speak and how we eat. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join with me now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and once you have found your place in the Word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now this is Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food uh, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, upon initial reading, you may be asking or wondering, why is food even a part of this conversation? We know God gave us food. God meant for food to be good. In fact, I believe that at some point you hit a certain age where you should not waste your times on bad foods. We save that for our children. I remember being a child growing up, having some pretty bad foods myself. So, why would this be a part of the conversation? How, maybe you're asking, how did we move from such a serious subject like marriage or the covenant of marriage and divorce and what the Bible says about marriage to now talking about food? Well, this would be a fair question because clearly we see that the church in Corinth was asking about food, and they were asking because food was a serious issue for the church in Paul's day. Now, to unpack what I'm talking about, we need to understand the context of what was happening to the Corinthian Christians during Paul's day. You see, in Corinth, there were many temples that were built for a variety of gods. All of them offered some sort of meal as a part of their worship, and chances are that some of that food had been sacrificed to these fake deities, and yet the rest of it was either eaten by the people, or better yet, was sold on the market to then be consumed by the people. So the church itself was asking Paul, can we purchase this food? Or better yet, if presented with this food, whether at market or at a festival or at a party or an anniversary or whatever else, should we eat the food? Now again, let's remember what we talked about a week ago. You see, a week ago, we were introduced to the fact that famine was now building within the land and it was beginning to impact Corinth. So the options of missing out on a meal were becoming slim. And if you were missing out on a meal, it may have been because of necessity more so than desire or want. Now, not only was this food scarce for the Christians, but these same Christians would be invited to social outings. And so as customary in attending a social outing, normally these outings, whether it be a party, a birthday, an anniversary, whatever it was, it probably had food involved. 
We also know that many of these social outings not only involved food, but they probably took place in some sort of temple that was used to worship some sort of fake deity. Now, for the Corinthian Christian seeking to be holy, it would have looked odd for them if they didn't show up for these activities. In fact, they would have been seen as social outcasts if they refrained from eating because of where the food came from, thus ostracizing them further and further away from the community. So the Corinthian Christians come to Paul and they pose the question to Paul, what do we do about the food? Now, as we've already discussed, some in the group can be defined as the knowers. These were those who were mature in their faith. They would already know that there was freedom in Christ, thus the issue of food did not nor should not face them. However, there was another group of Christians, those known as the weak. They were immature in their faith. They had no clue what God had said about food and what had been taught about food. And so they felt that they would either stumble or in their lack of maturity, they would go too far in their consumption of food. Thus, the knowers in their freedom were now becoming a stumbling block as the weak who had not been discipled were now watching them partake of something that they didn't know whether or not they should partake of. So Paul addresses their question on food. And ultimately, we see Paul call the Corinthian Christians to practice biblical knowledge. So let's take a look at what Paul means in the text when he calls the church to practical biblical knowledge. Three steps that he gives us in practicing biblical knowledge. The first one being this. If we are to practice biblical knowledge, then we need to know that biblical knowledge is rooted in love. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Now, unlike our day, the matter of food offered to idols was quite a controversial subject in Corinth. You see, this was bigger than the typical, well, where are we going to eat lunch after church service? Or better yet, asking your spouse, what do you want to eat? And then they say, I don't know, you pick, you pick. And they say, no, I don't want that. How many of us have had that conversation? Often this is a debate that we see even within our own homes, but this is not what we were seeing amongst the Corinthian Christians. So Paul in our text opens by giving us the subject of the original question, which is concerning food offered to idols. Now I want us to notice this phrase because Paul actually uses the Jewish phrase here um, in speaking of this food, uh, speaking of this food, because for the Corinthian Christians, in talking this way, they would have said it more in a negative light. Whereas for the Gentiles, who were now believers, they would have seen this food that had been sacrificed or offered to idols, and they would have said this, food is food is food, and therefore it simply is just food. Who cares where it came from? So clearly a debate had broken out in the church where one group believed it was appropriate to eat, while others believed it would defile the individual and ultimately lead them to sin. Paul then goes on in the text and says, now we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, the knowledge in question here is whether or not this food should be eaten by the believers. Now again, as we've already said, there would be some, these knowers, who were more mature, thus they would have more knowledge in this area. However, there was a, a weak group who may not possess that type of knowledge yet. So Paul continues, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Notice how Paul reminds the knower that their knowledge, if not kept in check, can ultimately lead to pride and lead to them believing that they are better than others because of their knowledge. Now let's remember, as we've walked through every chapter so far in 1 Corinthians, whether we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, all the way till now we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, pride has been the central theme throughout this letter that Paul is seeking to root out. So Paul says this, If you have the knowledge, then don't allow the knowledge to allow you to become self-centered. Rather, in your knowledge, be others-centered. You see, for Paul, he wanted knowers to use their knowledge not to advance themselves, but rather to use it to build up the weak and encourage them in their own walk. Paul then goes on to say in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now here Paul again attacks the pride that comes from having knowledge. Paul says, if you are proud of your knowledge, if you are proud of your wisdom, and you think that your knowledge makes you better than someone else, then you don't have knowledge at all. Why? Because you've not applied your knowledge rightly. You see, here's the truth that we need to understand from these first two verses coming from Paul. When it comes to true biblical knowledge, that knowledge is wrapped in humility and accompanied by love. If humility and love are missing from our knowledge, if humility and love is missing from our wisdom, then you may not be practicing biblical knowledge at all. In other words... Get out of your cage stage. We're not here to fight. We're here to practice knowledge for the purpose of encouragement and the purpose of edification. Paul continues in verse 3 and he says this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul again teaches us that love is the central mark or should be the central mark of a true Christian. And so Paul says, if we say that we love God, then we should love one another, which is how we will now be assured that we know God and ultimately that he knows us. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, pay attention to what Paul is speaking to. He is speaking to God's electing love. Notice he's not speaking to just to to the fact that God just loves us because we're great. Notice he's not talking about how God loves us because of all of our wonderful wisdom. No, he's speaking of God's electing love, which really should keep our pride in check because the reality is this. We have offered nothing to God for him to love us. And so we have knowledge. We have knowledge, Paul says, not because we're smart. We have knowledge... Paul says, not because we've read a few good books or or listened to a few good podcasts or maybe you're one of those audiobook guys or girls. That's not why you have knowledge. No, you have knowledge because of God through His grace, through His love, gave us the knowledge. You see, if we are mature in our faith, if we are knowers in the room, if we are people with knowledge, then the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do we look at others in grace and in love the same way that Jesus Christ looked upon us? Or do we look at others with contempt because we think we know 
better. You see, even when it comes to our own theology, if we begin to think that we are just simply better than those around us, then we have no knowledge at all. Because Paul would say that we have now forgotten that God has given us the knowledge. And he didn't just give it to us so that we could be better than others. He gave it to us so that we could better love others. And so that we could better help them understand the truth that is found in the Word of God. And so that we can help them better understand the love and the grace that they now possess because of Christ Jesus our Lord. So, the question before us in realizing that biblical knowledge is rooted in love is this. Are we using our knowledge to build up the body? Or are we using our knowledge to break apart the body? Well, the answer to that question will be seen in how we treat one another. The answer will be found and heard in how we talk about one another and who we now spend time with. And my prayer is this. Whether we find ourselves in worship collectively together today or whether we find ourselves in our workplaces or in our gospel communities or wherever the Lord takes us, men's gathering, women's gathering, whatever it looks like, my prayer is this, is that as the people of God, we would recognize and realize that biblical knowledge is rooted in love. And therefore, it calls us to be a selfless people. But Paul's not done there. You see, Paul not only teaches the people that biblical knowledge is rooted in love, but he continues into our second point. And he says this, that biblical knowledge points to the one true God. We see this as we read verses 4 through 6. Now what happens in these next few verses is Paul is actually going to humble the mature. He's going to call out the the knowers for just a little bit. Look with me, verse 4. He says, therefore we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Now notice how Paul opens by stating a truth that all Christians should already know. This is why he says we know. In fact, he says this multiple times in our chapter today. We know. Now when you see the phrase we know, Paul is saying to them, look, I am saying something to you that you already should know. You should already believe this. And then this is what Paul does. Paul then gives us what it is that we should know. He says that people may want to worship other deities, but none of these other deities are real. They simply don't exist. You see, for Paul, there was only one that existed. He was the one true and living God. In other words, he's not a figment of our imagination like other deities. Now, in this passage, notice how Paul's words echo the words from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then what Paul does from there in verses 5 and 6 is he begins to unpack the point of what it means to be and to believe in the one true God. So let's read it again. Verse 5, he says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords at verse 6 yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist 
Notice how Paul here in this passage now calls out the pagans who believed that the more deities you had, the more effective these deities were. However, if you go back and read the Old Testament, we clearly see example of the fact that the more deities you had, the more people understood that these deities were a product of human imagination. In other words, these deities could not pull off what people believed they could do. And so for Paul, he says that worshiping idols really reveals just how weak people are. Now think about that for a moment. Because what things in our lives have we put before God? That thing has a name. It's called an idol. And Paul says, when we put things before God and we begin to worship them, then we begin to reveal just how weak we are even as believers. Notice in the text, Paul continues and he says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Notice how Paul points out that God created all things. Therefore, as those created by God, we now exist for his purpose. We now exist for his glory. Thus, as his people who have been called according to his purpose, we are now called to honor him and to praise him, not only with our worship on Sunday mornings, but also with our worship as we move throughout our lives. But then Paul doesn't just stop there in the text. He goes on and says, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Notice notice that what he says about God is the same thing that he says about Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to know that Jesus shares the same stature as God. They are one and the same, and yet they are unique. Thus, Jesus himself is to be included in the identity of the one true God. Now, in saying this, Paul is now defying what many pagans were teaching who wanted the people of God to believe that Jesus Christ was just a part of created order. It's the same thing that we hear from people today when they look at us and say, it's great that you have a moral code, but let's be honest, Jesus was just a man. Paul would say, no, he's not. He was not created by God. In fact, he he literally, we literally see the Bible refute this when you read John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now again, coming back to our text, Paul uses this moment not only to teach about the oneness of God in both God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord, but he also uses this moment to teach that biblical knowledge really should be less about us. And if it's going to be about anything, It should be more about pointing people to the one true living God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you, in your knowledge, the mature in the room. I'm not assuming any of us are mature, by the way. I'm assuming you know that. So if that is you, for the mature in the room, I want to ask this question. With all the knowledge that we have, according to the Word, all the reading that we do, all the podcasts, all the other good pastors we listen to and the good theologians we listen to and the good, the good books we read, does our knowledge ultimately promote us and our own selfish motivations? Or do we use the knowledge that we have now obtained to point people to the one true God? 
You see, you may sit here and think that that's a no-brainer question for us today. But I want you to stop and think about how many Christians in this world now are doing things for their glory and not for the glory of God. If I possess more knowledge, then, then maybe I can make a name for myself. When the reality is, it should never be about us. It should never be about making a name for ourselves. If any name is going to be acknowledged, let it be the name of Jesus Christ. You see, there are too many of us today, and I say word, the word us, as Christians, too many of us today who want to be smarter in order to build a brand. But again, we are not called to build a brand. We are called to advance a kingdom. A kingdom that points to God the Father through the grace and the hope and the mercy that is found in knowing Jesus Christ who is our Savior and Lord. And so I ask this question of us today. Does our knowledge and our wisdom point people to Jesus Christ? Are we teaching and discipling and pointing people through knowledge to Christ? Or are we making much of ourselves so that people would brag upon our wisdom? I mean, I think it's His people today. As those seeking to practice biblical knowledge, maybe we need to heed the words of John the Baptist when we read in John chapter 3, verse 30, when he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, practicing biblical knowledge will and should cause us to be humble because the reality is we seek to make much of the name of Jesus. In our knowledge, we seek to glorify the one true living God. This leads Paul to his Third and final point, which for all of us who are excited to hear that, I want to encourage you, this is actually the last half of all of chapter 8. So we're going to be here for a minute. You have been warned. He says this, not only is biblical knowledge rooted in love, biblical knowledge points us to the one true God. Paul tells us in verses 7 through 13, he says biblical knowledge gives us a not statement. Biblical knowledge is not a stumbling block. Notice how Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians in verse 7. He says, not all possess this knowledge. Now Paul is actually acknowledging that there are some in their midst who don't understand the knowledge that they now have. He's talking about the immature believers at this point. You see, he's saying to them that they don't understand the freedom that they now possess because they have not progressed in their understanding of faith to that point. And so Paul teaches and tells us really who he's talking about here when he says, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Again, in using the words weak here, Paul's not trying to insult a group of people, but rather he's just talking about those who, who are new in faith, or maybe immature in their faith. And so he's actually speaking of a, a concern to them. He's speaking to a group of people who may have come to faith recently, but that, but that sin that they've been struggling with is the sin of the fact that they have grown up their entire lives up until this point in the idolatry of food being used as a sacrifice. Thus, they are seeking to avoid this food because they believe it to be contaminated since it was offered to an idol and not the Lord. In other words, they didn't understand the freedom that they had yet. 
And so Paul says, for the weak, these idols are still a very real thing for him, for them. Perhaps this is still a very real struggle. So partaking of this food may reintroduce idolatry to them. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, take note of Paul's point. We cannot expect new believers to know everything there is to know about God or about Jesus or about the Word or about their doctrine. We've got to encourage them in that. We can't be the type of people who when a new person comes to faith in Christ and all of a sudden they show up on a Sunday morning and we baptize them, we get them out of the water, we allow them to dry off, and before we allow them to eat lunch, we say, now can you explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity so we can make sure you're going to heaven? Can you explain to me the doctrine of of original sin? Can you explain to me what it means to truly be free in Christ? And how that freedom is found now in the workings of the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, I know you're ready to go out to lunch, so if you could just type this up for me and bring it back for the Sunday night service, I just want half a sheet. We cannot put unrealistic expectations on people that we are now called to disciple. Oh, and by the way, you can't force them to water. You have to lead them. You have to lead them. They may not be where you are, But that doesn't mean we beat them over the head. It doesn't mean we cast them out. It doesn't mean we drag them, kicking and screaming like children sometimes. But it means that we lead them. Lead them to what the Word of God calls them to. You see, for us who are the knowers, we have grown. We have grown in our own holiness. We have grown in sanctification. We have by God's grace, matured. And now we are being called to make disciples. In other words, if you are a covenant member of Southside Baptist Church, you and I now have the responsibility to help new believers grow in their faith and understanding as well. Now notice where Paul goes from here in the text. He offers a truth really to help both the knower and the weak. He says this in verse 8. He said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, the food we eat is inconsequential to our standing with God. Now again, as a footnote, this does not give us the license to overindulge ourselves in food. Meaning this, if someone has baked you a delicious chocolate cake, some of y'all went, whoa, like, yeah, I'm in on that. You and, listen, we get it, everybody else doesn't. We are the knowers, they are the weak. (laughs) Established it. That just went against everything we just said, by the way, in case you're wondering. Let's not miss that. If someone has just baked us a delicious chocolate cake, Because we now have freedom, because food is inconsequential, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we say, thank you, take the plate, and we crush the cake. The whole thing in one sitting. That's an overindulgence. But rather, it does mean this. It means for the Corinthian Christians, even this food that had been sold to the market, this food that had been sacrificed to idols, guess what? This thing is okay. It's just food. And thus, it's okay to eat. Now, this comment that Paul has now made would have shocked those 
of the Jewish tradition, especially those who lived in light of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, when it taught them to avoid certain foods, especially foods that have been sacrificed to the idols. However, for Paul, when we get to 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, he actually throws that argument to the wind because he says that God has created all things. Thus, God is the one who created the food to eat. Now, before the knowers could high-five themselves and say, let's do this, these weak people just need to move on, Paul says this phrase to them. He says, and we are no better off if we do. Meaning this, as those who are mature in faith, as those who are the believers, the knowers, we should not boast now in our liberties. We should not judge others because of our liberties. There's a balancing act here. And so here's what Paul does. In giving them this newfound freedom in verse 8, and affirming knowers, he then turns to verses 9 through 11, and he gives a strong warning to the mature. Look with me at verse 9. He says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Notice how Paul now warns the knowers to watch out. He says to them, don't allow your your freedoms to lead the weak to stumble back into the sin that they are seeking to overcome. In fact, he says, this right of yours. Notice how Paul acknowledges the freedom that the believers have, yet at the same time, he says to them, hey, look, you're free to eat the food, whether sacrificed to idols or sold into markets. However, he also says to not allow their freedom to become a stumbling block to the weak. Notice what Paul wants from the mature believers. He says to them, man, I want you to think about those who may not be where they are or where you are in your own faith and in your own maturity. And then Paul explains why he feels that way. Verse 10, he taught us. He said, Paul says he didn't want the weak to see the knower and then begin to think, why are these believers eating food that is wrong? And so here was a moment for Paul in verse 10 where he wanted the mature to show love in their faith and to abstain from this food in order to encourage the weak to continue to grow in their faith so that one day they would come to an understanding of the freedom they now have. He continues in verse 11, gives us another reason. He says, if the weak sees the knower eating this food, he or she may begin to think, well, clearly, if the mature are eating this food, then therefore I can eat this food, thus eating food to idols is now okay. And so the believers are warned, if you do this, this would lead the immature back into their sin. And then here's what happens. This weak person is destroyed, meaning the example being set is leading the immature back into idolatry, thus potentially placing them on a path that's going to lead to destruction. And then Paul explains why all of this matters. He says it in verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers, and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Paul says, listen, when the weak see you, they may become bold enough to follow you. They may become bold enough to do the same thing that you're doing, and the reality is this, they don't understand. Thus, the callous lack of respect, the callous 
lack of wisdom, back mature, is now leading the immature back into their sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you hear what Paul's saying to us? People are watching you. You don't think they're watching you? Look around this room sometime. People are watching you worship. People are watching how you leave. People are watching how you go on and live your lifestyle. And some of you may be saying, man, Johnny, that's harsh. Like, I'm not perfect here. No one's asking you to be perfect. Paul wasn't asking the Corinthian Christians to be perfect. But he was asking them to practice biblical wisdom. To practice biblical knowledge. And to recognize that you are setting the example for others to follow. And so what type of example are you setting? Paul, I believe, thinks about this point when we get to verse 13. Because he says this, Therefore, after giving this warning, he says, therefore, if food, speaking of himself, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And here is where we get, get Paul's conclusion. Now again, Paul is not calling for believers to abstain from eating meat. But rather what he is calling the brothers to do is to remind the mature to practice love over knowledge so that we do not become a stumbling block due to the lack of understanding. You see, Paul doesn't want the believer, the mature in the faith, to become a stumbling block to those seeking to grow in their own faith even if what is being done is okay according to the Word. So even as Christians today, we need to be mindful that our call is to continue to encourage those around us and to grow, uh, to help them grow in their faith as we continue to grow in our faith. Thus, Paul's reasoning is very simple. Discipleship and explanation will always be necessary before we take the next step and we indulge. Meaning this, if you're about to step into something or say something, that may need an explanation, explain it. Explain it. Simple scenario here. We have Christian words, and I love our Christian words. I wish we'd bring them back. I love talking about them. Penal substitution, let's go. Atonement should be a part of our regular vocabulary. Good with that. Wrath, come on. That sounded terrible, didn't it? Let me back that up with grace. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh man, pastor love for wrath. That's what everybody's going to take away. <laughs> love to bring some of these words back. Love to have conversations over, over different doctrines that we believe in. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we now live in a society where I think we need to do a better job of defending our doctrine. Okay? I mean, there, there's, there's churches around us that are like going sideways with doctrine. I'm like, that's, that's not even biblical. Like, where are you going? And we need to love them enough to have that conversation. We're not trying to be punks here, but we need to lovingly have those conversations with brothers and sisters. But, what, but here's what I'm getting at. When we begin to have conversations, let's recognize that when we say words that we know what they mean, people around us may not know. So before we jump into a great debate, define the terms. Define the terms. What is atonement? What is penal substitution? I'll use it again. What are the doctrines of grace? Well, why do we believe in the perseverance of saints? What does that mean to, be, to believe in the perseverance of the saints? 
What, what is, how, how is grace irresistible? Like, help me understand that. Not me personally, I get that one. But somebody may ask you that, or they may not even ask you that, but don't assume they just know. At the same time, let me say this to you. When something happens in the life of your gospel community or in the life of your church, and you don't understand what it is, before you just make an assumption about it and walk away and talk to others about it, come back and ask questions. Ask questions. Say, hey, I don't understand this. Will you help me understand it? Because I believe if we begin to do that, we'll, we'll help one another continue to grow. We'll help one another continue to see the goodness of knowing God, the goodness of being a part of a local body of believers. And ultimately, we won't become a stumbling block for one another because we're asking for understanding. So let's do that. You see, for Paul, and coming back to this passage, and he tells us that if eating this food set aside for idols is going to cause a brother to sin and in love, let's just hold off. Let's hold off on it. Why? Because the goal is to focus on discipleship. The goal for Paul was to lovingly encouraging new brothers and sisters to continue to grow in their faith. So let's make sure as believers we are doing that very thing. You see, as a Christian, it's easy for us to think that we have freedom. And here's the reality, we do. We have freedom. But the reality is there are many people around us who may not be aware of where we are in our walk, and ultimately we may not be aware of where they are in their walk. So again, as we said earlier, we cannot force people to just get on our level. Now Paul says, we're called to faithfully love. We're called to faithfully shepherd. We're called to faithfully encourage one another to to grow in their understanding of the word, thus growing in their understanding of their faith in God. And so before we indulge, or even before we condemn, Paul says, we need to ask the question, is what I am doing going to cause another to stumble? And if I'm saying something that that maybe someone doesn't understand, have I explained it according to the word as to why this is okay? What should really lead us to the next question, which is, do I care more about my needs than I do those around me? Remember we said biblical wisdom was not self-centered. It's other-centered. So let's see that as believers, we are called to encourage and to edify, not to become a stumbling block. Why? Again, because we said it earlier. People are watching what we do and what we say. And if you don't believe that, hang out with the kids. I love my little friends next door. I got to make sure I go over every morning and tell them hello. But even in my own home as a father, I recognize that my children are watching. My wife and I recognize our children are hearing us. They are seeing us. They are watching us. And here's the reality. I'm okay with them watching us. But I also understand that in my own frustration, sometimes I do things wrong. In my own frustration, sometimes I I say wrong things. And so for for, for the sanctification of my children and and my own need for grace, am am I careful to show grace to my children? Am I careful to, to point them to Jesus Christ? Am I, am I, am I humble enough to, to stand before my children and say, kids, man, I'm, dad messed this up, and I'm sorry. And as a brother in Christ, I'm asking your forgiveness. So even when it comes to our own children, are we being selfless or are we being selfish? And I believe if we could add a text 
to modernize 1 Corinthians 8, I think Paul would probably say this to us today. At the end of the day, it's on you. At the end of the day, it's on me. What are we doing with the biblical knowledge that we've been entrusted with? And I got to tell you, I uh, read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 many times, and who knew food would be such a serious subject in the Word of God? Thanks be to God that it is. You see, for Paul, he knew this subject mattered because clearly it mattered to the Corinthian Christians. And so here was Paul's point. In all things, in all of our lives, in all of our words, including our food, let's live out our love for Jesus Christ by reflecting his sacrificial love in all that we say and in all that we do, even in all that we eat. Or let me flip that word eat and say, even in all that we consume. You see, when it comes to practicing biblical knowledge, let's think before we act. Let's think before we speak because we don't want to cause another brother or sister to stumble. What we do want to do in practicing biblical knowledge is to make sure that our actions and our words point people to the one true and living God. And we want that biblical knowledge really to be wrapped and rooted in love. And when we do these things, according to Paul, then Paul says to you, you are growing in your biblical knowledge. Praise be to God for the work that he is doing in your life. I'm going to leave you with this quote from John Calvin, speaking upon the same point. He said this, for the beginning of all true knowledge is acquaintance with God which produces in us humility and submission, nay more. It prostrates us entirely instead of elating us. As we continue to grow in biblical knowledge, may we continue to fall more in love with the Lord, more in love with the, the opportunities that we get to serve. And may we continue to walk humbly as we draw closer and closer to his return. And to God be the glory for the grace that he has shown us. To God be the glory for the knowledge that he has given. The knowledge that we are called to share. Let's pray together. May your glory know.